right, episode six is here. We just finished recording. We want to give you a quick preview before you dive into the show. Shane, what did you learn in today's episode with our awesome guests? You know, I think I learned really just to expect the unexpected and that I definitely need to revisit the resources that they've provided. The link for those will be in the show notes, but it's bit.ly slash k12drp. Thank you. I learned I need to check the HVAC load and how that's going to impact the new generator we're getting ready to install in our MDF. So that was eye-opening, as well as just really run through those single point of failures that I know exist, but just make sure I'm aware of all of them as we're planning for all of this. So listeners, we've been trying to record this episode since September. Fires, pandemic, earaches have all gotten in the way, but we finally have it ready for you. So we hope you enjoy this one. Yeah, and please check the show notes for the links to the DRP resources, as well as the presentation that Steve did regarding the campfire and their response. It really is eye-opening. Enjoy. Welcome to Insight Podcast. In this episode, we have Jerry Jones, Executive Director of Technology Services with Sacramento County Office of Education, and Steve Monahan, the Technology Director with the Butte County Office of Education. My name is Shane Pinnell, and co-moderating with me is Jamie Lusatter. Hi, everyone. So excited. So episode six is here. And if you think back a year ago, February 2020, the unimaginable began to spread. Nothing in my history or experience could have prepared us for those challenges of really completely shutting down school. And with this comes such a great opportunity to learn and grow and be ready for whatever comes next. And our guests today are really going to help us think about planning and prepping for a disaster. But before we get to that topic, let's get to know our new NorCal friends, Jerry and Steve. So I have a game I want us to play. It'll help us get to know each other. Here's how it works. I'll say an either or choice and we'll all share our answer. So each of us will participate. So up first, Jerry, milk chocolate or dark chocolate? Definitely dark chocolate. Used Mm. to love milk chocolate, but my wife really loves dark. And over the years, I've come to really like that. So that's my answer. How about you, Steve? I would have to go with milk chocolate. I don't know. I'm just so used to it over the years. What about you, Jamie? Yeah, milk chocolate while I was younger, and then I grew to really love dark chocolate. Have you ever had dark chocolate with like a chili powder in it, like a spice? Oh, so good. Portland, Oregon has a really good company called Moonstruck, and they have like this ancho chili powder in there. Just excellent. I'll have to try that because I'm definitely dark chocolate myself as well. Thank you. Spotify or Apple Music? Um, Steve, why don't you start? Spotify. It's just there. It works. (laughs) So I'll, I'll go with Apple Music in my case. Just uh, it's got everything there. And I like to play certain types of music over and over. So works for me. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Apple Music too, because I'm bought into the whole ecosystem. No, no other reason than just bought into the ecosystem. What about you, Jamie? I love Spotify. It's just, yeah, it's just a really good fit for me with I love all the different options there and the algorithm that just kind of creates playlists for you. I think that's super mm-hmm. cool. And our last one. This is this is kind of like, are we going to be friends or not? Star Wars or Star Trek, Jerry? That's a tough one, especially because I know I'm going to offend half the audience here, but (laughs) Star Wars, although I definitely have certain movies that I love more than others, definitely a fan of the originals. Those are my favorites. Mm -hmm. How about you, Steve? Star Wars, but I'm kind of with Jerry, the old school ones, not not the really the new ones. Mm -hmm. Jamie, I'm pretty sure I know that you're Star Wars. Yes, yeah, yeah sure. absolutely. Yes, for sure. I think Star Wars, I mean, I enjoy I enjoy all sci-fi, but Star Wars kind of had a special place when I was a kid. Not so special watching it as an adult sometimes. Uh, <laughs> kind of, they've kind of fallen apart, but I enjoy the stories and, and any kind of sci-fi I, I, I like. So, yeah. It's been pretty fun with the newer movies coming out, even though, you know, they don't kind of hold the same kind of place in my heart as the originals, but being able to take like the tech department, we've been able to do Christmas parties and go Christmas parties, tech meetings, uh, you know, the last day of December and actually go catch a couple of movies. That's been pretty fun in the last few yeah. years. Thank you so much for playing. We'll go ahead and get started with our first segment. Yeah, Jerry, uh, Jerry and Steve, thank you guys for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I know you guys both have a, a extensive experience in presenting on the topic of disaster recovery, contributing to resources, and you, d- you will definitely have firsthand knowledge Please introduce yourselves and share a current project you guys are working on. All right, sure. So Steve Monahan, View County Office of Education. Background, I've been in networking, sysadmin world for oh, almost 20 years now. I've been with the, the County Office of Ed 17 years. I work my way up from uh, sysadmin to IT director now. A lot of Cisco experience. Learned a lot in education. Current projects, one of the big ones for us is always on VPN, which is a pretty new VPN-based technology. It leverages your firewall as well as the Microsoft components. So it's more of a seamless VPN experience for our users. 
where you don't have no manual intervention. It's a lot of like pre-authentication based on the device. Really cool, especially nowadays where there's a lot more remote access, but a huge project, very complex, but we look to get that established in, in just a few months and it's just a blessing for us. So that's where we're at. That sounds like a new uh, podcast episode we might need to talk to you about. <laughs> we're, working on, we're working on the same thing. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Awesome. All right, Jerry, are you ready now? Yes. All right. I'm Jerry Jones with the Sacramento County House of Education. I've been here since 1989, so for quite a while. Been in my current position for the last five years. And I've really enjoyed getting to know the other technology directors throughout the state at the different county offices of education, as well as in the different school districts through site and many of the other ways that uh, we get to know each other in the K-12 education community, especially when it comes to supporting technology for our different agencies. So the project that we've got going on that's got me really excited is we are very fortunate in Sacramento County to have a pretty robust and strong or fast network out to all of our school districts. And so we worked with our cable companies a long time ago to establish dark fiber connections from the County Office of Education to our different districts. And we've been over time working on creating a, not only a ring in the county, but a little bit more of like a mesh network. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this network that uh, not only do we have this dark fiber, but our next project is to upgrade all of the equipment over this network in order to increase the connectivity between the County Office of Education and our districts. And right now, we have redundant 100 gig connections here at the Sacramento County Office of Education because of how much bandwidth that our large districts need on a regular basis. And we're currently in the process of upgrading the connectivity for the districts to be able to support 100 gigabits mm -hmm. if needed for them. And so that's a big project we've got going. It's going to take us a few months to roll that out. But that's the beauty of dark fiber. Really, all you got to do is just upgrade the equipment on both sides with new optics. And then you've got new possibilities. So you could easily do multiple 10 gigs if you wanted to, to get up to from 10 gigs to 40 gigs per se, or go all the way to 100 gigs if you have the right optics and can afford the hardware. But mm -hmm. definitely uh, sky's the limit as far as dark fiber is concerned, which is really exciting. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing how fast fiber can go. Yes. You said the sky's the limit. I think you hit the nail on the head there. It seems it seems like every year they're coming out with a new, like the maximum maximum speed uh, on fiber is increased by tenfold. Yep. It's, it's pretty crazy. That's I'd awesome. The other, the other thing that's exciting about that too is just the fact that now that we've switched to distance learning, almost every district has been able to go to a one-to-one -one program where before I think we were all trying to get there, but mm -hmm. didn't have the finances or there was all sorts of barriers now that we're there because of distance learning, all these students are going to be coming back to our campuses and we're going to need connectivity for all of these Chromebooks at the same time where before we just had Chrome carts, right? And only right. had a fraction of those laptops. So we just know the amount of bandwidth that's going to be consumed going forward is going to be, uh, you know, at least double, triple, quadruple what we're using or what we were using pre-COVID. So I'm excited we'll be able to plan for that as well so that we'll have the infrastructure in place for all these students to come back to school again. Yeah, that's a great project. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited about that too. We've talked about this a little bit on past episodes, but just those opportunities that we can capitalize through all of this. And I, I think that's a, that's a really good one to actually start thinking about is what is our capacity for when everybody comes back because teachers are going to be so accustomed to doing all these things with the devices. I, I mean, I think almost at first there may be some sort of need to be away from screens. Yes. And just have that face-to-face -face time. So we may not see that at the beginning, but I think they're going to be so used to how they can just get feedback, do these projects, have all these interactions and collaborations that they're going to be definitely using more tech than ever we've ever seen, which is super cool. Yeah. So Shane, in, in the past, we've always just asked our guests what projects they're working on, but I wanted to ask you, what's what's a current project for you? I, I know I'm thinking about my laundry list. What's something that you're working on that you're really excited about? Probably top of top of mind, just basing off of what Steve was talking about, was that persistent VPN connection. We're testing that currently within our own district, trying to make sure that our laptops all went out into the wild, and now we're trying to bring them back in under the umbrella of our multiple layers of protection. So that's one project that we're working on. That's, that's pretty exciting. I'm trying to think of uh, some other ones. It's just a lot of small things that we're always working on, of course, but that's probably one of the bigger ones that we're working on right now. That's great. How about you, Jamie? I just actually got off a chat with my TOSAs and we're trying to examine learning loss and exactly how we want to measure that and what that looks like. So we were coming up with some pretty radical ideas of, is there an opportunity during fourth quarter to take action? 
and not wait until next year? And what would that look like? So that was actually a really fun conversation because I love talking about trying to use data in a more meaningful way for our mm-hmm. teachers in the face of not kind of knowing what's going to happen with CASP. So, so we are, are you talking we about really- assessing in, in the fourth quarter or, or doing mm-hmm. interventions in the fourth quarter or both? Both, actually. Yeah, because we were were imagining what would we do to help teachers kind of create assessments now that would be ready to go for fall. So they're not trying to do that over summer, but, you know, can we build in some time now? And then suddenly it spiraled to, well, why are we waiting until fall to Mm -hmm. do this if we know the problem now? Why would we keep piling more on the problem rather than addressing it immediately? So we're going to find some teachers to kind of pitch this idea to. And and that was pretty exciting. Yeah, that's very Uh, cool. Yeah. All right. So, you know, thinking back to our topic of why we're here today. So we had planned this episode actually back in September. And then, of course, we were going through a lot of crazy things during that time. I personally had (laughs) the most horrific ear infection I've ever had in my life. And then, Steve, you had wildfires in your area. So we we had to postpone. But again, just thinking about the term disaster, I really think it can mean a lot of things. Can we start by defining what disaster means to both of you and how you framed your work around that topic? Uh, sure, sure. So, you know, before all these disasters happened in Butte County, I had a different mindset of what a disaster really is. But at this point, a disaster can be considered many things. It could be a combination of hardware, software, even personnel to a certain extent. And if we look at the current pandemic, the current pandemic has disaster related aspects to it. So limited or no access to facilities, including staffing constraints is, is a big one. So in my opinion, really, it's anything that has a significant impact to a service can be considered a disaster. Mm-hmm. Jerry? That's you great. To yeah, took the words out of my mouth, Steve. So we always think of disasters as, you know, fire, floods, earthquakes, our data center burning down. But we definitely, we, we tend to not think of a disaster of, let's say that there was a small water leak in the data center and it happened to drip right on top of our sand and took down mm-hmm. our whole storage area network, right? Which most of us have virtual server farms, which require that that SAN be operational for it to function, which therefore takes out our entire infrastructure. And so now we can no longer do email if we happen to still have on-prem email, or if we have on-prem DNS, we can't do lookups to access websites out on the internet. We can't print checks because our our ERP system is down. There's just all sorts of things that now we can't do because of really some small thing that happened in our data center that uh, maybe went unnoticed because there was a a leak in one of the sprinklers or something like that. Or another thing that is becoming quite common and quite scary really is cybersecurity attacks on us. Mm -hmm. All it takes is the right person to fall victim to a phishing attack or tricked into downloading malware on their computer that sits dormant and then gets executed a certain time that goes through, not only encrypts all of the important files of their computer, but gets into our different file servers, encrypts all of that data, makes it over to our backup server, encrypts that data. And now we have no way to essentially continue functioning as an agency unless we prepared enough in advance, make sure we had a disaster recovery site, we had all of our data backed up and copied offsite in order to restore services, but the amount of time it takes to restore services is the amount of time we're gonna be down. So we are in a disaster scenario during that. So just another example of something that could happen to any of us and that we need to really prepare for that beyond just your typical natural disasters that we usually think about. Yeah, I really like that definition of disaster being anything that impacts your operations. So I know traditionally I've always thought of, we always had like a DR site where we've always had a, a copy of things that we could bring back online if we needed to. But now we have to think about disasters in kind of a, a broader scope where it's not just, I don't just need a DR site. Now I could have a cyber event where my DR site's not even available. So I really have to think more broadly about that stuff. And, and I'm glad to have you guys here because I know that you guys have firsthand knowledge of how to deal with these disasters. I know you've experienced things in the past few years. So how, how did those experiences get you guys started on the path towards creating resources that can help others? So of course we had that campfire disaster back in, it was 2018, right? Fall of 2018. Seems like so long ago, but it really wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago if you think about it. No. And I will never forget because I was at the SEPA Now Site Conference downtown. And a lot of our fellow technology staff were not able to come to that because they mm-hmm. were either affected by it or the smoke was so bad that mm-hmm. they really couldn't travel during that time. And I remember in the conference, there was literally smoke filling the entire mm-hmm. conference center. And uh, just as eating, you'd look up and it was just full of smoke. 
And while we were at the conference, Steve was up basically helping the Paradise School District with this major disaster that was going on at the time, which I'll let him talk about in a little bit. But after that occurred, we actually get together with the other CTOs from around the state at the different county offices of education throughout the year. And it's call it the Technology Steering Committee. And we had a meeting in December and Steve came to that and did a presentation about the campfire disaster and what the Butte County Office of Education did to assist Paradise Unified School District with that, that disaster. And I will say, as I was in the audience watching his presentation, I was just floored by it. It's just something that was, I thought I was prepared for a disaster and realized really quickly that no, I was not prepared for a disaster on that scale. And I don't think most education agencies would be at all. And after that happened, all of us were really deeply impacted by it. So we all decided to form a a subcommittee of our group to get together and work on resources to help not only ourselves, but the entire state prepare for disasters and uh, especially recover from them. And so just want to give you a little bit of background as far as why I got involved with the disaster recovery and and helping create some resources and materials that are are meant to help everybody. And then I'm going to turn it over to Steve so he can talk about the actual disaster itself. Sure. Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, kind of going back to what Jerry said back in 2018, November 2018, November 8th to be exact, six o'clock in the morning, I'll never forget it. That was one of the first major disasters in, in Butte County. We've had many others since then. We've had one of the largest evacuations across the state, and that was with the Orville Spillway incident, but uh, everybody thought the dam was breaking. We've had some fires, you know, not too long ago, back when we wanted to do this presentation. But really, it was just based on all the real-world experience that I've dealt with, seeing firsthand everything I've gained, I thought it would be a disservice if I didn't provide the same kind of understanding or knowledge to the Technology Steering Committee. And based on, on that presentation I gave, it was pretty overwhelming the amount of positive reaction. I, you know, I thought typical presentations are usually boring and all that. I talked from the heart pretty much what it takes to deal with the disaster, not only from a hardware perspective, but a personnel's perspective and all kinds of factors. And based on all the positive outcome of it, disaster recovery subcommittee was formed. And, and thankfully, Jerry was able to step up and help create this team with me. But really, it just goes back to a lot of the experience that I've dealt with and the ability to share it. I mean, Butte County Office of Education, we've had a disaster recovery plan. We had one before the campfire. Granted, it wasn't like it is today, just based on everything that I've learned and and feedback from the group. But we had something in place. And so the Disaster Recovery Committee not only took in account what I dealt with and the, the documents that we had, but it's evolved from there to create additional documents for other LEAs across the state to read and understand. And like I tell the team going into it is these documents that we've created or, or this perspective, you don't have to be a technician to fully understand and be prepared for disaster. And just the evolution of things from there. Yeah. So you guys, you guys mentioned the Technology Steering Committee and, and the Disaster Recovery Subcommittee. What's the umbrella organization that those are organized under? So that's a good question, Shane. So the umbrella is CSESA, and it's an educational services association that all of the county office of education superintendents belong to. And they get together on a regular basis. They discuss the needs of the different education agencies throughout California, and they focus on not only the county offices, but what's going on at the school districts and what kinds of help and support our school districts need, as well as the county offices. And so as part of this group, they have a few different subgroups and technology is one of them. And that's the committee that Steve and I both are on. And we were asked by the superintendents to please look into what can we do to help prepare the different education agencies in California for a disaster based on what happened with the campfire disaster. And so that's where Steve got nominated as the chair, obviously, because he's had firsthand experience with one of the largest disasters ever in California up till that time. And then we knew this was going to be a big project. And so I volunteered to help Steve as a co-chair on that subcommittee so that we could work together with our fellow technology directors at the different county offices to start pulling together resources and ideas and to see what we could do to help not only ourselves, but all of the school districts prepare for disasters and to recover from them if one occurs. 
I really appreciate the, the work that you guys are doing because, you know, at the LEA standpoint, I can come up with a disaster recovery plan, but it's it's much easier for me to get started with a document. I can just stand on the shoulders of giants and, and do my work based off the work that you guys are doing. And I, and I know that I personally, you know, lean very heavily on our, our county office. So when we open talking about the definition of disaster, it makes me think that there just there are a lot of commonalities when we're doing disaster preparedness. And even when the event varies, we'll, we'll see those similarities. I'd love for us to spend a little bit of time talking about that aspect. So based on your experiences, what are some of the biggest lessons learned that you can kind of recommend to everyone that they can take action on? You know, thinking what were those, those tips and tricks that you experienced that we may not think of traditionally when we're planning for a disaster? So for me, one of the first things I tell individuals or, or teams when when they're thinking about creating a disaster recovery plan is expect the unexpected. Uh, during the disaster, if you're a technician, you might not be a technician one day. You may be dealing with donations, for example, and, and logistics of, of the storage and, and how to communicate with vendors and a whole plethora of, of items. So, and that leads into the communication piece. Something that I didn't expect is how much communication really goes into this because it's not only you're, you're communicating with your team members to recover A, B, and C, but you're communicating with your organization, keeping, you know, our, our tech lingo is not the same when we're presenting to leadership in terms of recovery efforts. So we, we keep it strict, pretty straightforward and keep it simple enough where they'll be able to understand it. And then on a actual physical hardware standpoint, some stuff that we listed in our, our guidance document, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, is having appropriate tools ready. And those tools are not necessarily a screwdriver and a, and a wrench. It could be scissors. Scissors will go in and, and cut cabling and, and remove servers as fast as you can. Headlamps. In most disaster situations, the likelihood of having power is is not high. So having headlamps to be able to see in any environment you go into. Mask, it seems like we're all pretty used to masks, but that's another thing. Um, during the campfire, a lot of the places we went were extremely smoky, especially indoors. So having safety gear for yourself as well as your crew is important. And last but not least, I think in preparation for any disaster is having supply kits ready. You don't need a whole ton of them, but you need enough to be able to supply just those select team members on a disaster team to be able to pick it up and go. Uh, supply kits obviously can, can have a wide array of things like I mentioned, headlamps, scissors, et cetera. I would even go as far as saying there's medical supplies like Band-Aids or, or mm-hmm. Band-Aids to some degree. Yeah, what's really funny about, not funny, I guess it's just the timing. I was taking a disaster preparedness class through the fire department in January of last year. And we just got to the chapter in the the guide about PPE, mm-hmm. right? Like at the end of January. And so our instructor, one of the, the firefighters, he was telling us just describing N95 mask and things that just weren't common vocabulary. So we were all, you know, in class on Amazon trying to buy things, not knowing that we, we were about to hit this national shortage. And so I, I finally, now I've, I've been able to fill out all the, you know, the supply kits for my team, but it was a crazy time to learn all about that before everything kind of changed in our world. So yeah, I think my kit definitely has medical supplies. We have, you know, we we're thinking about in, in our area in SoCal, thinking about earthquakes and, you know, what supplies you need for that, as well as I, I was really excited to learn about the headlamps and scissors. Those were not in my kit. So I'm yeah. grateful for, for that tip. You know, and, and something else that I never really mentioned is, in our case, our, our county office of ed is 30 miles away from the major zones that got hit. But those major zones, it's when you go into a disaster situation, it's not like you can walk into the store and buy supplies. So mm-hmm. uh, snacks and eat, especially a bottle of water is very important to have that. When you go into a smoky environment, obviously you're gonna, you possibly could get a dry throat. You could, you could feel woozy, whatever else may be the case. I know we put ourselves in harm's way doing that, but you're going to need some type of product or in this case, bottle of water to possibly get you going again and, and rehydrate you. So that's even important, bottle of waters. Yeah, I remember being at the at the conference and struggling just walking down the street with all the smoke that was in the air. I can't imagine having to work even closer to the, to the source of that smoke. Um, I'm not sure how far away the, the conference center is from where the fires were. It's not, not too awfully far, but I couldn't imagine how smoky it was for you guys out there working, working through that problem. Mm-hmm. Hey, there was a, 
And something else I wanted to mention as far as lessons learned that was a probably one of the scariest things during Steve's presentation to us back in that, that December of that same year. And he talked about how the fires uh, burned so hot that they melted all of the fiber in that area. And so you think of that and go like, oh, okay, well, the fiber melted. So our, I guess the school sites don't have internet connectivity. Well, no problem. I'll just bring a MiFi with me. And when I'm at the site trying to help, you know, recover whatever it is, I can just use my MiFi. And of course, I'll have my cell phone with me too to communicate back with my team or to call anybody else that I might need to. Well, we forget that all cell towers use fiber in order to handle the cell calls. And so that same fiber melted to all of the cell towers. And so there was no cell service at all in that area. And it got me thinking, wow, how would I communicate with others if I'm either the one that suffered the disaster or I'm going in to help out without a cell phone. And definitely there is no internet connectivity because we're all used to popping out of MiFi to handle that when our normal network goes down. So we do have to plan for that contingency. What happens if we literally have no cell service and no backup for network connectivity? How are we going to still function? So that needs to be part of our disaster planning as well. Yeah, absolutely. What do you guys kind of rank as the, the highest needs for when you're doing your disaster prep? From my standpoint, I would say it's backups is definitely critical. Um, mm-hmm. And then having having an offsite DR site, especially, you know, if, it, if at all possible, is very important. Just making sure those are ready to go. Yep. So it, an offsite DR, so, I mean, we try to do that in the organizations I've been in. We, we, we do have those. But looking at the scope of the disaster that you guys had with the campfire, I can, I can imagine that within the school district boundaries, it doesn't matter how far you moved your DR site, it was going to burn. So what, do you have some some tips for that as well? Yeah, I would say having a tertiary backup site as well in the cloud would be the best way to go. So yeah. you have your, you know, your main disaster recovery location, and it could be within your district boundaries, or it could be another county over. That would be safer, most likely. But with the extent of the fires we suffered this past year, even that probably wouldn't have been far away enough, right? But having a third option of using Microsoft's blob storage or AWS's Glacier storage as a way to go and just dump your backups into the cloud. And they don't, you don't have to pay very much money for putting your backups in there. You pay when you go and get them out. Right. And so at that point, if that's all you have left because you lost your primary site and you lost your disaster recovery site or your standby site, then you're you're going to be willing to pay whatever it takes to go get that back out. So right. that's part of our recommendations is to have three levels of backup. And then that, that mm-hmm. last one is one hopefully you never have to use. But if you need to, it's worth every penny that you're going to pay to get it back. And that was one of the scary things about the campfire disaster is they came very close to losing everything. Right, Steve, it was like just lucky enough that the the building that the server, physical server is located in did not fully burn down because I think everything would have been gone had that happened. Yeah, that that's correct. And and, and that's one thing to consider during a disaster situation. There's going to be a lot of rumors flying around the media, local local staff. Um, and in our case, you know, the they said, you know, the Paradise District office had burned down. And that wasn't actually the case. Uh, fire came very close. Yes, it did have smoke damage and it, it was pretty bad shape, but it was still accessible. Everything inside was still existing. So that's why I say earlier, expect the unexpected is don't necessarily listen to, to everything. Take it all into account, but definitely take it one step at a time. And uh, like Gary said, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, everything around the district office burned down. District office survived. So we know we need backups. We always know that we need backups. What are some other things that will help us prep for a disaster? Kind of that order of precedence of check check the box for backups. What's next? What's the next thing we need to look at? To me, a spam filter, just having that and making sure you have a spam filter in, in a proper location. A lot of the school districts around here, although they did not have the fire ravaging their town per se, the internet, the core internet connectivity did go down for a specific amount of time. And when that goes down, although they were cloud-based email service, their spam filter was internal. Uh, so okay. everything was still pointed to their internal mails, their, their spam filter, yet they couldn't get the email. So they had so they had a on-premise single point of failure. Even though they were cloud, they had an on-premise single point of failure that, that impacted their Right. Their operations there. Okay. So I mean, and, and and if you think of the spam filter, any any single point of failure, especially if it's internal and it can go down, I, I would say as a as a technician, 
uh, definitely look at that to try to move that to a location that's more secure and, and flexible in terms of access. Yeah. Okay. I can imagine uh, maybe some internal DNS servers would be similar single points of failure that we'd need to at least know how to make the necessary changes to to get them from on-premise to somewhere else in the event of a disaster. Yeah, we do recommend having a tertiary DNS server off-site somewhere mm-hmm. that's accessible just for that reason. Because again, if our data center is down because of a local minor disaster, it doesn't matter that all of our email is stored in Office 365 or Google people can't look up our MX records to get the mail to you know, those services. And so technically, like anything that we have on-prem that's part of point A to point B to get email from one place to another is something that we need to think about getting off-prem as much as possible and into the cloud so that really all of our communications are in the cloud as much as possible, or at least there's a backup service that can take over. And yeah. like what Steve was saying, the anti-spam is definitely one thing, but there's other things. You have to look at kind of how does email get from outside, from one place into where I go and access it? And is there anything in there along the way that's in my internal network? And mm-hmm. if that was cut off, would that stop email from functioning? And, and like you said, DNS is like the number one thing that most people don't think of. We run our primary and, and secondary DNS servers usually out of our own data center. And if that's down, even if we have a DR site, how are people going to get to our services if they can't do DNS lookups, right? So there's a bunch of work you could do to go transition over there. And that could be part of your plan as you do the work, or you just build up a third DNS server that's hosted out of your DR site, or even better, in the cloud somewhere. So it doesn't matter where you're located and what's down, it's still functioning if the rest of your network is offline or unavailable. Yeah, address, addressing those single points of failures is definitely, from a, from a preparation standpoint, definitely key. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got some notes here as well about radios and those W, I'm not sure what this is, the WPS slash guest cards. I think that's the thing that lets you get to the, actually make a phone call in the event of a disaster when the phone lines are all tied up. Is that correct? Yeah, so that gives you priority access to the cellular network if you have a guest card. Mm-hmm. So- okay. That's another thing we don't usually think about until the disaster happens. So let's say that the uh, cell network is fine, it's working, but usually in a disaster, everybody's trying to call their family members to tell them they're okay, or their family members are trying to call them to see if they're okay. And you're going to get the all circuits busy you know, signal when you try and make a phone call because they literally can only handle so many calls at a time and right. it gets overloaded. And so having this special card, and it's something that your agency has to go and apply for, gives you priority access to the cellular network so that when you go make your phone call, you get prioritized above all of the normal cell traffic because you're a first responder, or in our case, like we were involved in in helping with the disaster for an educational agency, which qualifies us to get a GETS card. And so it essentially allows us to have access to the network when normally you would probably get busy signals trying to make those phone calls. Right. And that's something we definitely need to do ahead of time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't do it during a disaster. It's <laughs> too late. Yeah. Yeah. You can request that through it's it's through Department of Homeland Security. And you can also get one for landlines as well as cell service. Oh. So you can get priority. Yeah. And and if you if you register as a point of contact for your district, then you can actually create other accounts for people in the district. So you can start building them out for your principals. So it, I, as of right now, I'm the only one in my district that has one, and I just am trying to make the time to add more users to it. But it's a, it's a pretty straightforward process. Definitely recommend everybody get that if they haven't already. Put that in your disaster recovery binder. Great. Thanks, Jamie. So we're nearly through with this segment, but I'd love to hear just a few things about, you know, the days after the disaster. Steve, you you talk specifically, I've seen your presentation, just what were, you know, what were the first 96 hours like for you when you were dealing with the fires? So the first 96 hours, obviously, it's it's all a blur at this point. It's real hectic. But <laughs> specifically, I, I remember uh, working with a lot of the ISPs around here. Comcast was a big vendor up in Paradise. Uh, we did have dark fiber running to the, the schools out there. So just really coordinating with them to reestablish internet connectivity to the sites that are still up. Now, granted... <laughs> Before the campfire happened, they had, a you know, it was an older town, a lot of telephone poles and fiber and, and long, as well as power runs along power lines. Those were all burnt down and it was a pretty crazy scene. So it's not like you can just throw up a pole and put fiber on it. So what Comcast did in communication with us is they were just laying fiber on the grounds from hundreds of miles, all the way from Oroville, Chico, just laying it along the highway, fiber optics to reconnect these sites. Now, granted, 
some of the fiber runs did to get destroyed. Somebody would run it over. I mean, there's a lot of work going on during the disaster, but that was the quickest way to reestablish um, internet connectivity to existing schools. In addition to that, like where did the students and the staff reconvene at? And that was throughout the county, not necessarily in Paradise, but other locations. Uh, there's a lot of buildings that were vacant at the time, no longer in Chico area. So establishing connectivity, high-speed circuits, these sites was was another priority. Like we were on it within the first couple of days. Now it's important during a disaster that you do get on a situation like this as fast as possible because it's not only your organization that's going to be requesting assistance from ISPs, whoever else, it's everybody else in the county it could be fire department, police department, et cetera. And they all want first come first serve. So it's, it's more of you get in line and you wait, but you may need to make sure you get into the front of the line if you want to get stuff done. Um, there's a lot of, lot of holdups possibly from just hardware availability, whatever else is the case. But yeah, it's really establishing circuits uh, one way or another. They just get established. I was just thinking in order to prepare for that, you have to know who to call. Yes, that is correct. I, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think like if, if all of my fiber melted right now, I mean, I, I know who to call, but what if that person's not available? Like, do I have, do I have the 20 to 24 seven helpline that where I can call in and, and figure out how I can get service reestablished? That would be um, something definitely that we would need to prepare for. Yes. And that's actually included in the disaster recovery template that we have. And again, we'll talk about it later, but there's a, there's a location where you can add multiple phone numbers for important providers. So I think that's a great place for us to transition over to talking specifically about the resources that you've created. So in our final segment, we always like to give ways for our listeners to take action. And I think, you know, sharing all the experiences and the resources that you created are, are a way to help all of us shore up our own disaster planning. So I'd like to make sure listeners know that they can go to bit.ly forward slash K12 DRP, and you can access all of the resources that Steve and Jerry have put together for disaster recovery. Can you guys tell us a little bit more specifically, we kind of alluded to them all show, but what are we going to find when we look at the resources that you guys have created? Sure, I can talk to that. So we've got three primary resources that we worked on all of last year and unveiled. Well, I'm sorry, the previous year, because this whole last year is a blur to me now, but Mm -hmm. um, the previous year's site conference in the fall, the last time we were able to be back together in person. And we spent a lot of time creating a disaster preparedness checklist, which is the first thing that you really should start with, because it allows you to go through and look at how really prepared or ready are you for a disaster. And it's literally a a list of checkboxes that you go through and you check off each one saying that, yes, I have this, or yes, I I am doing this, or yes, I am prepared for this. And then you can look through and see which items did you not check off. And those are the things that you need to work on. And part of the checklist also requires you to go through and think of things like how long is my runtime for my UPS and my data center? And it might be something that you don't know. And so you got to go in there and look on your UPS or maybe run like a test in terms of shutting off power to see, you know, about how much time it's going to indicate before you run out of power for your data center. But it it sort of forces you to go through and evaluate where you're at right now, because if you don't know where you're at right now, you don't know where to start in terms of preparing for disaster. So I think that's probably the most important thing that you can do, even if you can't get to the other things right away. At least you can evaluate where you're at now and look at maybe some of the there's going to be things in there that you just didn't know or didn't think of before that really jump out at you. And then you realize, oh, wow, yeah, we really need to do this. There's just so many other things that you knew you needed to do. You just didn't realize the priority of like why making sure that you've got a generator to back up your UPS, for example, which most of us, if you're in the, the fire ravaged areas, we've all realized how important generators are really not necessarily just because of the fires, but because of the PG&E power shutoffs, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really affected a lot of California yeah. the past two years. So once you're done going through and you've evaluated sorry, where you're at with that checklist, the next thing that you would do is I would recommend looking through our disaster recovery guide. And that's step number two on that list when you go to that web page. And the reason that's important is it's in some ways going to explain why some of the things in that checklist are important and maybe provide some additional information that you just didn't know about or weren't aware of in terms of best practices. So an example of an item that you might find in the checklist would be that you really should have your HVAC or your cooling systems on the generator power. 
And sometimes mm-hmm. people don't think about this because they, mm-hmm. they draw too much power. There's no way to put them on a UPS, right? So if you've got an extended power outage, you now have a room that, sure, it's functioning as far as power goes, but it has no cooling. And it's not going to take mm-hmm. long before that reads, reaches incredibly hot temperatures and you're going to have to go shut down your equipment just to save your equipment. So again, it's just a small thing, but very important. And so if you don't have a generator right now and you're planning on putting one in, for example, that's something you need to plan for that when they go and bring the power into your data center, that you make sure that it's also wired in such a way that it's going to power your air conditioning units at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the disaster recovery guide goes through that and many other scenarios in terms of best practices for disaster recovery and disaster uh, preparedness. So it's a, it's a great resource. It doesn't have too much technical detail that it's it's very readable by really anybody. So if you've got a pretty strong technical background, you'll have no trouble understanding it. And if you don't, you'll still be able to understand the concepts that are in there. And then third, we have our disaster recovery plan template that Steve talked about a little bit ago, where you're going to go through and essentially create different groups or teams that are going to help you in the event of a disaster. You're going to make assignments in terms of who's in charge of what ahead of time. And then there's different sections in there. And one of them is communications, who's going to handle communications. One's a list of vendors so that you've got that handy. Another one is a list of emergency contacts. So you know who to contact in local law enforcement, fire department. I would definitely put in there your telco carriers so that you know who to contact if you've got, again, fiber cut or melted and things like that. So you've got really everything in one nice document that if you lost everything but had that document, you still could go and get your standby disaster recovery site up and running and functioning again. And if you had, again, certain things not working, you knew who to contact and call in order to to get that part of the plan implemented. We also have a few other uh, sections in there, but I I think focusing on those three would be pretty good for the the podcast. And Steve, is there anything that I missed in that description? Not really. Just going back to the guidance document, it's not all technical. There is a section in there when it it discusses selecting team members for a disaster recovery plan because that's that's just as important as selecting you know as selecting the right hardware. If you have team members in this recovery group that are uncertain if if they're going to be able to step up when there is a disaster, you, you probably don't want them on that disaster recovery team. So I mean, it goes over this guidance document is amazing and it goes over quite a few things that you may not ever think of. Yeah, thanks, Steve. And then back to what we were talking about before, Shane. As far as email goes, there's a whole section on email considerations mm-hmm. and it really covers everything we talked about as far as ensuring you don't have any on-prem system dependencies that would then make your email system not function if you had a major disaster either on-site or somewhere in the chain that would cause your, your external email to not work anymore. And we've all spent a lot of time in moving our email infrastructure from on-prem into the cloud. So we really should take advantage of that and try and eliminate as many on-prem services we have as possible. Because really the cloud services are so good now for email, we really could just run everything out of that. And we just have to double check. There's just not something that we forgot that's going to prevent that from working if we have a local disaster. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about uh, having the checklist, reviewing the guides, going over those templates. And those things sound like there are aspects of those that are kind of outside maybe the purview of the LEA's, you know, director of technology or CTO. So do you guys have any recommendations on on other parties that we might need to bring into this conversation? County COE offices, I'm thinking of uh, maybe your internal safety and security teams. Yeah, that's a a good question, Shane. And as we've developed these resources, we've been communicating all of this out with the other CTOs that that work at the different county offices of education. So they're aware of all of these resources as well. Mm And as county offices, we are trying to do everything we can to help support our districts. And so I would recommend that you reach out to your county office of education technology director and start there and just say, hey, you've heard about these disaster recovery resources and you want to find out more about them. And is there anything that they can do to help you implement a disaster recovery plan, go through the checklist and essentially just help overall with disaster recovery, preparedness and planning. And then on top of that, quite a few of them are now providing disaster recovery hosting services as well. So that could be a location that you actually put your your offsite equipment and storage 
and use your connectivity back to the County Office of Education as the way that you're copying your data over on a regular basis. So that mm -hmm. should something happen to your infrastructure, could be, again, something like a malware attack where ransomware takes out all of your, your data for whatever reason, and you can go back over and get it from that offsite location, just as an example of why that's so important. So I would say definitely start with the County Office of Education technology directors. And also we try to work with them as well so that we're a resource to them. So maybe if they don't have much experience, Technology Steering Committee's Disaster Recovery Committee can help them out as well. And, and that's our, our goal. And what we're trying to, to do right now is help foster that relationship between the county offices and the districts in terms of helping everybody prepare for disasters and to, to be able to recover from them uh, by following all these best practices. Yeah, absolutely. The, the COEs can be a great resource for us. And I I'd also recommend for anybody that's doing disaster planning to, to work with your, your district's local safety and security team. And in my district, we have a, a disaster planning team and, and they've invited us into the fold and we have basically every director's there, nutrition, it, basically everything is there because a disaster impacts everybody. And we need to know in order to plan appropriately, we, we need to have all the voices at the table, including, including the technology voice, of course. Yeah, that's great. So I think summing up this segment, you know, we have some questions for everybody to, to start with when they're thinking about these conversations. So again, what direct services would your county office of ed help offer or support on this? What support can you get with disaster recovery from them? There's also the feedback form on Steve and Jerry's resources. So bit.ly forward slash K12DRP again is the URL. So you can get support there. There's check out that form. And I think we also uh, want to Oh, oh ahead, sorry, please. Jamie. I just want to say, I think we can put that uh, the link to that bit.ly uh, in the show notes on the different mm -hmm. podcast apps. For sure. Um, also, don't forget to connect with your site regional groups. It's a great way to bring questions and get help and just really tap into all the knowledge that everybody brings on this topic. And then lastly, just on that same, same idea, just share your ideas. Um, if you know parts of this, find a partner that doesn't know what you know and share. And we always learn by teaching. So it, it, one of our most recent regional group meetings, we actually focused on cybersecurity and had a member come in and do a presentation on his most recent ransomware attack. And then everybody kind of chimed in. And so it was a really good way to share, share that knowledge. So definitely encourage using your regional groups to support that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Steve. Those are all great ideas. And again, we we just learn from each other, right? And there are mm -hmm. some of us that have strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others, and they complement the others that are the reverse of that, right? And that's what we found out with the, the tech directors that helped put together these resources. There was no one person that knew everything. But as a team, we really were able to work together to come up with, the, again, best practices and recommendations that I think work well for just about everybody. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is if you don't know who to contact at your local county office of education, you can fill out that feedback form that's available through that link and it'll get up to me and Steve and then we can reach out and put you in touch with the appropriate person to get that conversation started. Thank you so much. That's awesome. So we're going to wrap up. We're at our final segment. So I want to just start by saying thank you so much to our guests, um, Jerry Jones and Steve Monahan. We've been waiting for months to have time with you on this topic, and it was definitely worth the wait. I know I have my to-do list and some action items. I've, I've had documents open as tabs on my computer for a while, so ready to dive in and, and work on the parts that I'm not as strong on. Yeah, and getting some headlamps ordered. That's on the to-do list. So as always, I want to give a shout out to our amazing site staff, Laurel Nava, Tuda Bentatu, Andrea Bennett for supporting this podcast. We're grateful for the work that you do to make this happen each month from scheduling to editing to motivating Shane and I. So thank you. And then Jerry and Steve, this is your turn. We want to give each of you a moment of airtime for any shout outs, gratitude, or appreciation that you would like to share. First off, you know, Jerry, I, I have to thank Jerry all the time. He's he's my wingman in this. He's been with me since day one. I couldn't do it without Jerry. Also, the TSC, the, the subcommittee, all the members that have contributed to, to make this what it is today. And also just my own IT department. A lot of guys stepped up when when it hit the fan. And just everybody as a whole, just thank you. And, and to, to, to this podcast group too. Like, thank you for just allowing us to, to voice the importance of disasters. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. And I, I got to say ditto. I mean, Steve's been awesome. I so appreciate that he's been willing to share all of his lessons learned from that experience with everybody. And, and he didn't hold back. He didn't only share the good parts of what happened. He shared all of the, the uh, maybe not so good or the, the major challenges that came up 
that they had to go figure out. And I think that that lent itself a lot to the development of these resources, that experience that he went through. And I appreciate any anybody that's willing to share lessons learned in terms of mistakes that were made, right? Because I think we all think that we're the only ones that have, you know, the UPS that doesn't have enough runtime or the generator that really probably needs to be replaced or, or we don't even have one. When you reality, as we talk to each other, we realize a lot of us are in the same boat. Like yeah. we've, mm-hmm. we've all had some kind of like a minor thing happen that took down our infrastructure for several hours, which was a minor disaster at the time, but we're afraid to share it because then we're worried what other people think of us and that kind of thing. So please don't feel that way. You just realize that we all have, again, strengths and weaknesses. And I think working together can help strengthen each other. And I definitely want to give a shout out and thank you to Site. I really appreciate you and Jamie and Shane for your time putting together this podcast. This has been awesome. You made this very easy for us. And I really appreciate that. And then like Steve was saying to our technology steering committee uh, members that both worked on the disaster recovery subcommittee, but just as a whole, because we got lots of feedback from all the memberships. So I appreciate the other tech directors in the county officers of education that have spent time putting together these resources. And um, also our previous TSC presidents, uh, so Justin Norcross and David Wu, who helped shepherd this process through from beginning to end and kind of had the vision behind, hey, we really need to take this to the next level and put together some official resources that we can help everybody with versus just learning it ourselves and only in keeping the information just to ourselves or just the county offices. So I'm thankful for them as well. All right. Well, thank you guys. Really appreciate the information that you shared with us today. We have a couple of final questions for you. And these are, this is our would you rather segment. So would you rather have free AWS storage for all districts your COE supports, or would you rather all the districts have generators for their MDFs? Oh, that's easy for me as generators by far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Because we're, we're lucky in Sacramento, we're not as affected by the pg power outages and getting free mm. AWS storage would be pretty awesome. Like if I could just put <laughs> everything in the cloud, problem solved. But unfortunately, it is not free and costs quite a bit of money. So it's the it goes back to the whole trade-off. So I would probably choose AWS, even though I would really miss having a generator. That's, that. All right, thank you. <laughs> and the second one is, uh, would you rather have a self-driving car or a Watson-powered AI for replying to all your email? I'll take that one. That's a tough one. Uh, hmm, yeah, what would give me more time, right? Right now, we're not driving as much. So, boy, having a Watson-powered AR sounds pretty awesome. But I would look to lo- I would love to have a self-driving car. That would be so cool. I think I would just pick that, even though I'd probably regret it because of all the time Watson would save me with my email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was this was probably commute time dependent. What about you, Steve? Uh, I would have to say the car because I don't know if the Watson AI will pick up me being sarcastic during the <laughs> uh, Jamie, I forgot to ask you. So, so uh, would you rather have free AWS or the generator for your MDF? Definitely AWS. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm I'm in the same. Well, we already have a generator, so I'm going to go with AWS as well because I've already checked one of those boxes. That's excellent. Well, thank you all so much. This was a really fun show and we just appreciate you being here with us very much. Thank you all. Thank you. And make sure to check out the bit.ly link that's gonna be in the show notes. It's bit.ly slash K12DRP. And all lowercase. All lowercase. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you.